Hello, you're listening to The Retro, that Agile podcast. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at The Retro Pod. My name's Tom Bennett and I'm joined as ever by my host and friend, Tom Horland. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing good. After that uh, after that interview, I've got a lot to think about, especially about reliability engineering. So in tonight's episode, we've been talking about game days. We've been talking about fire drills, war games, you name it. It's all about introducing chaos to your organization to improve reliability. I know I've learned a lot tonight. What about you? I've had really good fun getting my head around it, mate. Um, it's been a really good episode. Um, think testing, but with heavy metal music. Hope you enjoy. Hello there, you are listening to The Retro, That's Agile podcast. My name is Tom Hoyland, you can get me on Twitter, and my handle is That's Agile. And I'm joined, as ever, by my friend, Tom Bennett. How are you doing, buddy? I'm very well, thanks, mate. I'm really well. Uh, yeah, you can get me on Twitter as well. Uh, my handle is Agile Talent Guy, and we've got a great guest this evening, haven't we, mate? Absolutely. Today, we are joined by the always eloquent Oliver Lever-Smith, also known as Oles. Uh, you will know Oles from Sky Betting and Gaming. His Twitter handle is... Hey, it's Oles, that's all one word, and we are going to be learning today about chaos engineering. We're going to be learning about self-inflicted, well-thought-out chaos experiments and learning during live incidents. I'm really looking forward to this one. How are you doing, Oles? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you too? I'm good, thanks. Fantastic. Really well, thank you. Really well. Now, Oles, we'll do a bit of a bit of a one-stop shop for you then, really. Uh, do you want to give us a bit of an intro to you, who you are, what you're up to at the moment? Yeah, so like Tom said, I work at Skybetting and Gaming. I'm a senior platform engineer in the core tribe. Uh, what we do is a lot of like high profile uh, services for the rest of the business. So we handle things like the login and um, payments sort of thing. Um, and what I do on a daily basis is uh, just sort of general platform stuff, um, operational support, but also uh, being platform lead on a lot of new and exciting um, projects. Brilliant, cool. So we'll, we'll dive straight into it then. So chaos engineering is is a concept that I'm I'll be I'll be honest I'm I'm very unfamiliar with, and I guess main the main reason for that is that I work with people. So um, you know if, if when I get it wrong, it's, it tends to be broken hearts and feelings um, rather than just broken servers. So um, the, the the concept is one that wouldn't necessarily work in my life, in, in my field, but. Talk me through it. Give me a bit of an introduction into chaos engineering for those who are in a similar boat for me um, as me um, and aren't necessarily so uh, so familiar. So chaos engineering as a sort of concept goes back quite a few years now. And it's essentially um, the discipline of running experiments on systems in a controlled manner so that you get confidence in how those systems are going to behave in real life when they're under those similar sort of failure scenarios that you've tested against. A very sort of basic example would be you test how your application um, behaves when the network connectivity goes away so that you can build your application so that it handles that and it fails gracefully. So that if it's in production and you have a network failure, you know how your app is gonna respond and you're not surprised with how it behaves. Got you. Are you comfortable in chaos? And is that something that you've learned to uh, learn to be or adapt to over the years? I imagine it is. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've I've been in tech for ten years now. Uh, it's, it's ten years this year. I need to write a very lengthy blog post about my history in tech because it's been it's been a whirlwind. <laughs> um, Get you a cake. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Uh, so th there's that aspect, but then it's also like a, a life a, like a life aspect as well. Like chaos seems to follow me around. Um, 
like I've got I've got kids, which is which is a chaos in itself. But <laughs> you've just got to you just got to embrace it. And it's it's funny. I was going to come onto this in a bit, but you've you've actually touched on it already, um, saying that chaos engineering wouldn't really make sense to you because you just deal with people. Yeah. Now, in in the concepts of chaos engineering, there there's a lot of stuff that is relevant just for systems. Don't get me wrong, like computer systems. But there's nothing that actually stipulates it must be a computer system that you are experimenting on. So I know that Agile obviously deals a lot with people and teams as systems. And, and there are concepts in chaos engineering that will help you to understand how your team is a system and how your company is a system that can be experimented on so that, you know, if the worst happens to your company or to your team or to a member of your team, you're not surprised. Got you. I think that's pretty powerful. Uh, I, I like how you 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 are like almost like turning it on its head there. So it's not just the technology; it's the people, because like you said, people are complex, adaptive adaptive systems, and uh, and that doesn't matter whether it's the the people that are supporting your product, or it's the people that that are interacting with the product and the service that you are using. So in in terms of chaos engineering, then let's say that I am a uh, let's say that I'm a product owner. And I'm obsessed with getting more and more features on the roadmap. What's the what's the value of that that chaos engineering, that reliability engineering aspect? What's it going to give me? What's it going to give my customers? How could we sell that? Well, put bluntly, put bluntly, if you can have all the features in the world, you can have the best the best experience for your customers once they're logged in or once they're on your website. But if they can't get to your website, then it doesn't matter what feature set you've got, you're going to lose out to the competitor who's got a maybe a paired back version of what you're doing, but they've thought about reliability. They've thought about how they handle interruptions in service and they've got a slicker, a slicker way of, of dealing with it. So we're saying then that reliability and we talk, we're saying availability and all of those things that improve the robustness, those are just as important as the functionality. Would you say that that's what customers seek as well? Um, I mean, I can't speak for all customers, of course, but I think even if people don't say it, I, I don't think people would put reliability at the top of their lists of um, reasons they shop with a certain online retailer or use a certain gambling company, for example. They wouldn't say reliability is necessarily up there, but you can guarantee that if the site goes down when they want to place a, a bet or when they want to buy a present for someone and they need to do it then and there, they're not going to wait around. They've got no loyalty for that. They're going to go to the one that is available to them at the time. So if you like, reliability is a feature the same way as you would have like a feature delivery team um, doing new shiny things. Reliability is a feature the same as that. I think the way you've explained it there about hopping to another, hopping to another uh, supplier or to another business, it may not be the most attractive thing. It may not be the thing that people are talking about. It's, you know, it's not on my wish list of, of shiny features, but if it's not there, all of a sudden my interest goes somewhere else. It's almost something that I take for granted, but when it's not there, I really, really feel it. I don't know what you think, Tom. Am I talking rubbish? No, I think you're right. I'm, I'm, I've got my own analogy in my head and, um, I'm using rugby as an analogy I'm, I'm, and I'm associating reliability with the sort of fundamentals of passing, catching, tackling, you know, not exactly the, you know, the, the things that are going to make the highlight real, um, but without them, 
um, none of the shiny stuff comes off. So no, I, I, I completely get, I completely get the concept. What what I want to know is how going going back to the, the people element slightly. How do you prepare someone, and how do you get how 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 would you go about getting someone on board with chaos engineering? Someone who typically isn't used to the concept, isn't used to failure, um, and historically maybe hasn't reacted to it particularly well. Can you sort of mould someone? to fit chaos engineering or is it a certain type of person it's not it's not that it's a certain type of person it's just i think you need to have had a particular set of experiences before you become like an advocate for it um so you once you've had like a a big revenue generating system break that in your retrospective of that incident you realize you could have prevented by having more robust systems in place. Once you, once you have that experience, really the idea of chaos engineering, whether it's in the name chaos engineering or whether it's in the name, you know, reliability, reliability engineering, resilience engineering, the idea is there that once you've had that massive failure, you don't want to be there again. Or even once one of your competitors have had that massive failure, you don't want to be the next one. How do I go about getting this in then? So you've definitely sold me on the value of this. It's just as important as the, the shiny product that I'm selling. But how do I introduce this to my delivery teams? How do I get on board the chaos engineering roadmap? I mean, you need really, you need to have a good relationship with with all aspects of the, the decision-making um, parts of your machine. Like as I'm talking as as like an engineer that, that works on systems that, um, that need to have this resilience and reliability in place. And essentially we, we've had, we've had failures in the past that we have then looked at the, the, um, the post incident review of these, of these, uh, failures, seen that there are things that we could do better. And then we've implemented them. And now that we have done that, um, and proven that, you know, we, we had this problem we fixed it in a way that it will never break again. And we've extended this fix to all other systems um, so that we will never suffer this problem again on any of our systems. Uh, once they've seen that is the case, that buy-in gets a lot, e a lot um, yeah, it gets a lot easier to kind of sell, uh, sell the idea of, uh, of putting the work in to make more reliant systems. So it's, I mean, for me, you're pushing on an open door there because, you know, it's, it's reducing the mean time uh, between systems going down and systems then recovering. So your MTTR and your MTBF, your mean time between failures. How can we, how can we kind of like integrate that into development teams? Is it something that we can put into teams that just focus on development or is it for teams that have a DevOps mindset that don't just build the products that they build and they run them as well? How, how do we introduce it into those types of teams? Does it work well in one, but not in the other? I think it can work in any team. Um, and like, like I mentioned, it doesn't have to be just computer systems that it, it's been, been worked on. I think service ownership is probably the, the most important thing um, in terms of getting, getting the buy-in to spend time, um, to, time to spend time um, making the service better. Because if I, as a platform engineer, go around lots of different development teams and say, this problem is broken. This this application does something wrong uh, when the network goes away. For example, it needs to change. 
but I'm the only one that is ever in, uh, ever experiencing those incidents or the only one dealing with these outages. The the kind of um, the what's the word? I think it's empathy, isn't it? Yeah, the the empathy isn't there from the team that is actually able to make the changes. Whereas if you have your development teams um, on call, for example, or responding to incidents in the day at least, and they are dealing with those systems when they break and when they break catastrophically, when they needn't break catastrophically, then they are then both empowered and also willing to make those changes because it betters themselves as well. How do you prioritize these I, I, well, just failures. Then, if you if, do, you have a sort of backlog of sort of right. This is what can go wrong. This is what this is. This, this would be the worst case scenario. This is best case scenario, and work backwards or or work upwards, um, or do you break them down? How, how do you go about organising it? So, really, in order to get this backlog that you, you're talking about, you need to actually do experiments in the first place, and this is like one of the the fundamental pieces of the the chaos engineering. Um, sort of cycle is running the experiments on your systems and seeing how they respond. So the first thing you, the first priority, the main priority should be to get your systems in a state, not where they're perfect, but where they are observable and where you can see how they, how they're behaving. And then, and only then can you start looking at doing um, experiments on them to find out what your failure scenarios are. So, the 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 kind of general generic sort of failure scenarios that, that one of them i mentioned is the network goes away um another common one to play with is the the disk fills up that's running your on the host that's running your application and it can no longer you know manage data in any way these are very simple things that you can do to say right okay it looks like if the network goes away then our application breaks but if you don't already have a way of looking into your application and seeing exactly how it breaks when the network goes away, then you may as well not be doing it because you can't ever, you can't ever fix an application so that the network is always there. You can't ever fix an application so that the disks will never fill up. These are things that, that can and will happen. It's about designing your application around those failures that will happen. So who comes up with these fiendish scenarios to test the team then? So like I say, there's a couple of generic ones that you can do. But really, in order to think up dastardly scenarios to uh, to put your applications through the paces, um, it needs someone who is very familiar with the applications and the services and how they interlink. So you will get value out of doing just the network failure testing or disk failure testing. However, where you'll get your real real value is when uh, you do stuff that is actually really relevant to your application. And when you're looking at the actual connections that your application makes out. So just for an example, um, if you have your main application that talks to an API somewhere else, you can get a pretty basic idea of what will happen if you cut connection to that downstream API. You'll know something will happen in your application that will break. That's a pretty generic thing. But if you have someone who is thinking, um, who has got the mindset of working on that application on a day-to-day -day basis, has the context around how that application works, they can then start thinking of scenarios like, 
what happens if the endpoint that we're talking to is there, but it's just super, super slow at responding? How, how long do we take before we time out and present an error back to the end user? What happens if that endpoint is there and is responding quickly enough, but it's every single response it's returning is a bad response? Or it's returning a response that says it's good, but the data that it's sending back is garbled information that we can't actually use. Now, in, in that example, there's you know that application that you're that you're running that calls that endpoint should have everything in place to, you know, have some graceful timeouts, have some graceful degradation if the uh, if the API goes away. It should do some sort of error handling on the information that it gets back from that endpoint to check that it is what it's expecting. But if it doesn't have any of those, then those slightly more nuanced ways of thinking about what happens if that goes away, that's when that's really valuable. So let's say, uh, for example, that I'm, I'm, I'm working with my product owner as a scrum master, I'm working with my product owner and we're trying to make sure that we've got a, a well-balanced and a healthy backlog is reliability engineering concerns is chaos engineering these types of activities that we've talked about are they things that i do right at the beginning of a piece of work is it midway through is it at the end or, or is it all the time afterwards where do we fit it in it's part of your continuous delivery uh continuous life cycle buzzword whatever you want to call it like it's it's everything through and through you you, you start building your application with the idea of how it's going to look in production, even though it's not necessarily concrete, you have an idea of how it's going to behave, what it's going to interface with. Um, so it is, it starts from the beginning and it does go all the way through. So an example of how we, um, we do this with, with major projects is we'll have, um, as part of our acceptance into service for a new product or a new service, part of it will be, what are the the failure conditions that have been tested? How does it handle sorry? How does it handle failovers, um, either within a DC or sorry within a data center or cross data center? Um, how does it handle you know a full failover from primary to secondary site? You know all these things are baked into our acceptance into service for a new product. Um, that doesn't mean that once the product is accepted into service that stops because the product is now or the, the service is now in production it's now part of that um that ongoing battle to keep it reliant keep it up keep it stable and like i mentioned before having not just platform people dealing with it but having the the developers that wrote the application also responsible for its running and for its upkeep helps um helps make it stable because they've got that route directly into the application themselves. Can you give us an example of a time where where chaos engineering has saved or revealed a potentially huge blunder or a huge sort of, you know, if we would let that happen, we'd have lost millions of pounds or, you know, that would have been catastrophic for the business or whatever without, you know, without going into too much detail. So let's think, I might be a bit slower responding to this one while I, uh, add, I filter out bits <laughs> between between brain and head. Um, so, yes, in, in short, yes is the short answer. Um, the longer answer 
is there was a, a system or service, sorry, that went live that was a massive, massive um, feather in the cap of the people that were working with it. It was, uh, it had eyes on it business-wide. Um, the people that work on it will know that they are the people that work on it because there's only one product, uh, one service like this that was delivered. Um, and it was revolutionary, revolutionary within the business. In the um, the acceptance into service that I mentioned, as part of that, we were running uh, a, a game day, which is essentially a time boxed uh, day or half a day, where you run a load of chaos experiments, not just to see how the um, computer system or service reacts, but also to see how the people systems that are, uh, that are supporting the service react. So in this, uh, in this game day, um, we ran a scenario that we that didn't behave in the way that we expected it to behave and uncovered um, a problem, a problem with downstream dependencies. I'm being vague now. That that <laughs> you're doing a, problem... a good job, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Proper anonymizing it. <laughs> it's, uh, it uncovered a, um, an issue with downstream dependencies that didn't behave how we expected and um, would have essentially left, um, left a user of this very, very important service staring at a, a white screen um, instead of getting any sort of response back to say something went wrong, please try again. So we we went into the the game day expecting it to behave in a certain way based on how the application was written, but it uncovered that that was definitely not how it would work if this downstream service went away and it would be catastrophic. And yeah, probably probably a lot of revenue problems from that. Well done. That's all you're getting. That's very all you're getting. Well, very very well done. No no, I, I appreciate that and. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking um, once again with my sort of human head on, rather than my um, rather than necessarily my technology head. Is there ever a sense of pride around uh, the, a, a conflicting sense of pride ever around, around uh, f with the people who have ever say built a product or built a service who are having you lot sort of come in and hammer it, look for a look looking for an issue, and then and when you do find one, is there is, is there ever any? Is this a silly question? Is there ever any sort of ill feeling between teams when you essentially dissect someone's work and, you know, carve out a massive hole in it? I mean, it's uh, we're lucky in that we have quite quite good working relationships with everyone in in the team. Um, so there's not there's never that sort of feeling of oh you're coming to pick apart my work. Yeah. Um, but what's really important is that it's not it's not me or the platform people picking apart the work. It's the teams, the feature teams that have built the applications that are involved in that process themselves as well. So in reality, it's nothing, it's nothing more than like a code review or having one of the testers have a look at it and, and see what will break from, you know, firing a load of requests at the application in their test suite. This is just a bit more, a bit more nuanced, a bit more synthetic of real life rather than does the application return what it says it's going to return according to the test suite? I, I think that's quite an interesting question because I know uh, in, in my travels, I've come across teams that 
have an element of psychological safety, the, the kind of environment that uh, Oles is describing now, where people are not afraid that they're, they're going to have their ideas torn down. This is not about diminishing uh, a team or a group's work. It's about making the product better and everybody's in pursuit of that. But I suppose in some cases, some teams don't have that element of psychological safety. And I think that is where teams may feel that kind of like, oh, he's coming in over here with his chaos engineering. He's broken everything. He's making me look a fool. It doesn't but, help that it's called chaos engineering. I've got this image in my head of you with like a visor and a chainsaw. Just pulling, pulling wires engineer. out of things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just coming in with a massive hammer. Oh God, here come the chaos engineers. And it's it's got it's it's got a bad rep because of the word chaos engineering. It's funny. There's um there's a guy who's pretty pretty prevalent on the scene uh, called Russ Miles who has renamed or taken to renaming it Surprise instead of Chaos. So it's yeah. Surprise everything, um, and also it's uh, changing the uh, the word for um, incident into Surprise because incident is another another dirty word really. Yeah. Like you say, oh, we had an incident. Yeah, I think they're People immediately go on go on the defensive and, and alarm bells start ringing. I think there are some some real negative connotations there, aren't there? I mean, but I think one thing that I'm really interested in is on the subject of incidents being bad things. What do you do when you're trying to convince organisations that this is a this is a good thing to do? I know we've talked about you know finding better ways to to improve reliability we've talked about reducing the the the, the mean time to recovery but what do you say to organizations that say we don't want you to go poking around in our services we don't want you to uh, set the chaos monkeys loose the thing with with the enforcing this chaos upon systems is that everyone has incidents you, you can never go through life. If you go through life without having an incident, then you're not doing anything. You're not making changes. You're not, uh, you're not building features. Change will always end up creating an incident of some description. It's inevitable. The, the kind of trade-off you have to make or the decision you have to make is when you're engineers are responding to this incident, this major service outage. Are they doing it for the first time on an application that they don't really know about because they've never broken it before? Or do you want them to just be comfortable? It's, it's just another training exercise because they already know how this application breaks inside and out. They know how, how it handles all its dependencies going away. Um, they're a lot more comfortable with it. Incidents are going to happen it's whether you are trained for them or not. So it's not just the, the obviously the preparation, identifying these these edge cases so we can avoid situations. It's all it's it's also about the people as well. It's about getting them into the rhythm, the process. Is that it as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the the term in in the sort of incident management world is uh, fire drill, and um, anyone that's had a fire drill at school will likely have like uh, a mental image of walking as slowly as you can out of class to waste as much time when you're having this fire drill and can i get my coat no you've got to get straight <laughs> out it. You... leave it's everything february. on the desk it's february miss <laughs> leave everything on the desk oh, my phone no yeah. you can't leave everything and there's a kind of in fact there's a lot of negative connotations about everything i'm talking about really there's a negative connotation about fire drills in that all they really do is, is breed complacency because 
there's there's a, a sort of there's a um you can if you want just go through the motions and you'll see oh you 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 get this this scenario that something is broken and you have to fix it and right it doesn't matter because it's not really real it doesn't matter if you have to take a bit longer to do it and then you come to an incident in real life and it's nothing like that because your, your fire drill that you've been running is not indicative of how your incidents actually happen. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I've, I've tried before is war games. And I think they're, they're game to, that they are different to game days uh, in, in the way that you've described. I've found them quite useful. And going back to what, what Tom was mentioning before, I think right back at the start of this, the human element, technology is not technology on its own. It involves people. You've got to have those people around it to support it, whether it's actually bringing that service back up again, but also communicating with your end user and your customer and holding their hand through that process, because that's how you're going to be measured, really. It's the quality of not just the product, but the service that you receive. When I've tried war games, they've worked really well because it's always been about bringing everybody, everybody together in the same room. Yes, introducing that element of surprise, a little bit of chaos, running through scenarios. But it's an incredibly powerful thing because it drills the organization. It gets us to think, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but you're actually thinking outside of the box. You're thinking outside of the system as it's designed to respond. How far do you go with, uh, with game days? How far do you go with chaos engineering? Uh, is it something that's purely trapped to the, the technology or could we start to just start to introduce it into a contact center, start ripping out uh, wires and plugs or just getting rid of documentation, seeing how people respond? Could you extend it that far? Yeah, absolutely you could. So there's, there's like I say, there's no sort of limit to what the concepts of chaos engineering can be used for. Um, so I, I talk about the, the people side of it. There's a guy from Google uh, called, I think it's Dave Rensin. He did a really good talk at a, a conference, um, Chaos Conf it was, either last year or the year before. Chaos Conf. God, Chaos Conf. The lights go out halfway through. It sounds it's awesome, it's it? funny. I'm sure, there was, I'm sure there was something. I think it was the projector didn't work or something. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was ironic. Um, so he did a talk there about the the human aspect of chaos engineering and that is something that can be done on any business whether it's a technology business or otherwise so the examples the premise that he said is that your um your company or your team is a service and the individuals within your team are buggy microservices um your your microservices make up your team but you shouldn't treat any one of them more special than the others. And if there is one that is behaving differently to the others, then that is kind of indicative of a problem further down the line. Example being, say you have an engineer who's really knowledgeable about a certain service that you run. Whenever anyone has a question, outside of your team, whenever anyone has a question about how that service is operating or something goes wrong with it, they always go to this one person. If that one person 
leaves the company, doesn't do a proper handover, gets run, down, run over by a bus, takes an extended period of leave. What happens to that knowledge? There's a really fun experiment to do, not done it yet, but I really want to, um, which is taking the, the concept of having a um, network latency, so really slow responses, but bringing that to people. So you allocate one member of your team who is only allowed to respond to queries half an hour or an hour after they've received the query and not immediately. And a few things may happen from this. So the person who asked the question may get bored of waiting and go and find it in documentation and know for next time, oh, I don't have to rely on this person because there's documentation here already. What might also happen is they might get bored of waiting and go and find another member of the team who can read documentation and pass that into information that the, uh, the question asker understands properly. Again, there's no problem there. The third option that could happen with this is that the person can't find the documentation. They ask a member of the team. They don't know the answer. They can't find the documentation. After an hour, the original uh, person who was asked the question responds. And that's the only place in the company that that piece of knowledge is held in that one person's head. That's a massive knowledge gap. And depending on what exactly that question was, that could be millions of pounds of revenue generating problems. Do you see what I mean? Like if, if that was like, how do we, how do we rebuild this database cluster? You know, if, if you don't know the answer to that and that person is gone, you've, you lost your data. Yeah. That, I, could, I, that could take a, take a business down completely. I really like that. I think that's a, a, an absolutely fantastic way of just pointing out and really pointing and like waving and saying, look, we've got a single point of failure here. And what is the cost of having that single point of failure? And uh, a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, when I was running a, a couple of war games exercises, that was one of the key things that we kept flagging up. We've got a single point here, one person that has this knowledge in their head and everybody else is looking for them. It's not documented anywhere. We're totally reliant on this person. And it's not it's not good for the organization, but at the same time, it's also not healthy for that individual, is it? I mean, Tom's been reading the, the old Phoenix project. It sounds like a bit of a Brent there. Oh, I was going to drop the Brent. You've, done, you've ruined it. I've ruined it, sorry. It's <laughs> just about to drop a Brent. No, no, I completely agree. Well, just, just to back up slightly, Tom, for anyone who's not familiar, would you mind going through the concept of war games? So war games are a bit like what Olsa's did described except it's more focused on the enterprise and business so let's say that we're not putting any product live let's say we put in a brand new service live so something that is all the way from your contact center somebody picking up the phone somebody interacting with the product and then getting aftercare sales and support what war games tries to do is it tries to get the tech people in the room so you build you build teams your product teams but then you get your other teams that sit around them all the all the way from concept through to reality you've got legal in there you've got your compliance team you've got your marketing you've got your operations contacts and everybody's there and what we do is we we drop in scenarios really fiendish scenarios like Oz has described that nobody really knows what the answer is nobody's prepped on them but we just say okay well how do we deal with this customer's inquiry and who do we throw it to it doesn't mean an issue may not always go directly into our operations team. It may come to legal, it may come to marketing. And it's just to see how do we pass that inquiry from one place to another? What's the value chain to go through the organization? And it's about understanding if people drop the ball and if they do drop the ball, 
then they're dropping it in a safe space. We can identify, okay, well, did you have enough information? If you didn't have enough information, let's make that visible. If you're reliant on a single person, let's bring that information out of their head and let's just bring all those things to the surface. So it's, a, it's about, it's a bit like Bolzer's described really, but it's a bit, it's a, a bit of a more of an enterprise level, not just the product backlog, but almost like the service backlog. I don't know yeah. what you would, what do you think holes? It's, it's basically like it's, it's game days and fire drills, but for business processes rather yep. than for computer systems and people systems. In fact, no pe people systems are kind of the, the intersection of the Venn diagram of, uh, of war games and, um, game days. It's the people in the middle kind of cross both, both bits of it. I can tell you one thing. You could never introduce the role of a chaos engineer to a people team. You'd have to call them like constructive criticism engineers instead of chaos <laughs> engineers. <laughs> I think, um, I, th I think a lot of this goes back. I mean, we've talked a lot in this podcast about the importance of self-reflection for improvement and um, rewarding curiosity and exploring the unknown. And I guess a lot of that, uh, and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the time within a sort of people perspective, but I guess a lot of this is just relaying that back and implementing it into the, into, into the world of technology, isn't it? Just, I guess, you don't, you don't know what you don't know, do you? So it's all about, it's all about finding out, but I guess just like self-reflection, um, you know, that, that is off, you know, that often can be what is, you know, most, most, most scary or most intimidating to, to a business or a leader. Um, because, you know, if your golden goose turns out to have a massive flaw, that can be, you know, massively detrimental to, to plenty of other things too. So yeah, it's interesting. And it's, 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 it, it I think it'll take a special mindset to work. So credit to any team who can, who can implement chaos and, um, you know, fight through it the thing you've got to think like the 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 easiest way to kind of get into it and and think about what what would happen is to just ask questions like what would happen if what would happen if this happened what would happen if x if y and it's that like you say about you don't know what you don't know is true but you do know what you think so you may have a hypothesis of what might happen. Yep. Chaos engineering is about solidifying that as a hypothesis, um, getting the, the measures in place so that you can accurately track how your system is responding when you throw that failure condition at it and whether it meets the hypothesis or not. So chaos engineering is a lot about the experimentation as well as the actual doing. So would you say it's... It's more about the reality. It's more about dealing with things in a in as real life scenario as possible. Yeah. So it's like chaos engineering has been referred to as testing shifted right because it's kind of like doing the testing, but in in production. Um, it's it's a kind of complementary to testing in the traditional sense, anyway. Um, it's alongside, it's kind of alongside the same thing as performance testing and load testing your applications. So your traditional sort of test suite will say, does the app respond with this? If I send it that, you know, it'll, it'll check quite a binary sort of thing along the way. Whereas your performance testing will say like, how does the application respond under not just a lot of requests, but a lot of requests that match the load profile of what our actual customer traffic looks like. Like you can have a service and you can just fire thousands of requests a second at it, 
and that might be fine. But if your traffic profile is like 10 requests a second and then one quick spike of 100,000, this this test of throwing tens of thousands of requests at it isn't actually load testing it. It's just seeing that, yeah, it'll, it'll trickle along doing that fine, but how does it deal with that spike? And yeah, chaos engineering and, and performance testing are at that sort of other end of the uh, the delivery scale, if you like, and uh, they're a bit more a bit more realistic. Chaos engineering is like testing, but it has to be done to metal music. <laughs> um, that's what I think. <laughs> if you want to mandate that, I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. You should all have to wear armor. <laughs> what about pre-mortems then? Because I've heard a lot about pre-mortems. Uh, I've been involved in a couple of pre-mortems. If we were to get pre-mortems and chaos engineering and stack them up next to each other, which one's going to give me the most value? Let's say I'm a product owner. We want to maximize the value for my time investment. I want to get the biggest bang for my buck. Which thing is going to get my team match fit so that they can support my product and which one's going to drive out the most insights to, to make the most reliable system possible? I think it is going to be chaos engineering because it's not it's not just a, a sort of a written or a thought exercise. The, the, the whole point of the chaos engineering cycle, if you like, is that you, you write down your, your weaknesses or your perceived weaknesses with your systems, and then you actually put them to the test and you get the evidence to back up what you've said, or you get the evidence to say, actually, we were completely wrong. And it's actually gonna be much worse than that if we let this be released to production. And are there any instances where this can go wrong? Um... Can you sort of, um, can you overly break something? Can you can you take it too far? Is what is, is I guess what I'm what I'm what I'm getting at. Hundred percent, yeah. So I this will be this will remain anonymous because this isn't actually my story. This is um, this is from a conference I went to um, back end of 2019, I think it was, and uh, there was a a gentleman there who was trying to introduce chaos engineering to the bank that he worked at and um, he got a few successful sort of non-production chaos experiments done and got sort of approval to try some production chaos experiments in a banking environment which I think is madness anyway like side note there's the myth in chaos engineering that you have to do it in production like there's I don't know. I don't know where this where this comes from, but everyone everyone seems to think that chaos engineering is breaking your production systems. It's not necessarily. It can be. There's no rules around. It has to be. It can only be production. We we don't do actual full breaking production. Um, we do it in our staging environments and our um, disaster recovery environments, which are production like, but not full customer facing traffic at the time that the chaos experiment is run. So this guy had just got approval to um, to do a chaos experiment in um, in production, messed up the parameters that he was running his chaos experiment with, and instead of degraded service, it was a total lack of service, which ended up taking down mobile banking. So yes, you can definitely go too far with it, um, but really, if you can go too far with it in an experiment, then you could go too far with it in day-to-day -day activity. And that in itself is something that you learn from. 
Like how how was he able to break that? He shouldn't have been able to break mobile banking for everyone. So that in itself is the learning from it because even though it's not what he expected to do, he somehow managed to break it. And and how do how do you prep for um, for situations where I guess you know let's say traffic's going off the scale. Let's say you know Glastonbury tickets have been released. How many hundreds of thousands of people are you know trying to trying to get on that website at one time? You know. If, it happens year and year, year after year after year. You know, you start refreshing hours and hours and hours. Can you just not prepare for some environments? Is there is there some some things that you know you just you, you can you can be as chaotic as you want, but you know, it's just you just you just can't go that far, sort of in a in a safe environment. Talking about hitting F five and refreshing a web page, I think you're on about your PS five purchase, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of them. <laughs> um, yeah, like there is. There's no way that you can account for every eventuality. Um, and that's that's not the aim of what chaos engineering or the fire drill process tries to do. There's always going to be unknowns, but the point is that you you well for for the chaos engineering side of things, you identify gaps and weaknesses in your application that allow it to fail gracefully or degrade gracefully. Um, if certain failure conditions are met. So if um, if the, the number of requests is going through the roof, like you say, then there may be some sort of queuing mechanism that, um, that hits into place at a certain threshold and can sort of stem the flow a bit rather than um, what happened last year before you implemented this, which was your website crashed and no orders were taken because the load just got too much. So that's that's an example of that one. Um, the fire drills, they're not intended to make it so that your engineers can respond to any incident or th that your engineers know the exact uh, thing to do to fix every incident. What they're for is to allow people to gain the confidence in the safe space that, that you've provided for them so that when it comes to actually dealing with an incident, they're not worrying because it's the first time they've ever had to deal with this system. Like some of the some of the most relaxed times I've had is when stuff has been burning around me, not literally, of course, but uh, when things have been burning around me and it, it having that exposure to dealing with incidents without there actually being an incident, it just allows you to be in a certain kind of zen, calm, mode when an actual incident is hitting because it's just more of the same yeah I, I i can definitely agree with that i think if you see a really well disciplined team a team that has really got to grips with understanding the product understanding how each other respond in the right way in the right culture in the right environment during a during quite a stressful time it's a really interesting thing to see. It's a really proud thing to see. Uh, I get to work with some really great teams. And when you see them responding during P2, P3 incidents, yeah, things are sometimes on fire. But what you get to see is you get to see a team at the top of its game, those human interactions. That's where there's a lot of value. And I think I definitely agree with what you've just said there. It doesn't matter what the context is. It doesn't matter what the incident itself is. It's about how that team is trained to react, how it how its muscle memory kicks in, 
and then how it restores service because that's a real really telling sign of a team you can never prevent every incident from taking place but what you can do is you can improve continuously the way that you respond to those situations i don't know what what you two think no i agree i think um i think i think listening to what also said and I'm now, I'm now thinking about every time I've ever met him, and I'm, I've never seen him break a sweat once. So is uh, I guess you, I guess you're just training yourself to be unflappable, really, aren't you? I guess if, if you, you know, as you mentioned before, you've been in situations where it's, you know it seems like everything's on fire around you, um, you know. But I guess everyone, the something everyone's asked in every interview they've ever been to is how do you respond under pressure, um, and everyone's got their own answer for that. But I guess you know. You, I can imagine you've got a pretty good one <laughs> and some pretty good evidence to back it up. I, it's funny because like it, it's, it's very different personal pressure and and like business pressure. I deal a lot better with um, with the business like um, business from a sorry pressure from a business perspective than in personal life, and it's because I'm getting a bit philosophical now. But it's because like at the end of the day when even if your entire like service goes away and you're losing money every second and all that, it's it's only a website to to coin a phrase of someone that I uh, I admire greatly. It's only a website, and the, you can either fix it or you can't. There's no in between. Like you can either fix it and you do it, or you can't and someone else needs to do it, and you need to get them involved there's no point like stressing out and, and getting anxious about it because everything's either in your control or it's out of your control and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And I, and I guess if you can fix it, then it makes sense of been in that scenario and experienced, you know, that process in a, in a less real time environment so that, you know, you can, you can get the motions turning and, and, and get it fixed and keep calm. Exactly. Keep calm and carry on. <laughs> I think, that's I, really it. Like I think we've got our hashtag for the episode. <laughs> yeah, I really like it. I uh, I think that's a really nice, almost philosophical end to, uh, to to this podcast. It's been absolutely brilliant. What what do you think, Tom? Really enjoyed it, mate. Keep calm and carry on. I think there's a lot we can... I, I, I think, you know, whilst we've explored the concept from a technical perspective, I think you, you, you can constantly apply to aspects of your own life or, or your own role or whatever that may, may be. I think it just makes complete sense. So... Um, you know, I'll get my metal music on, get a bit of chaos engineering done. Gosh, it just sounds so cool. Chaos engineering. <laughs> okay. Uh, what we'll do is we'll give a final wrap up. Uh, Olds, is there anything else that you want to say, buddy? Uh, no, no, I've covered everything. Fantastic. It's been absolutely great to have you on. Uh, so once again, uh, we've had Ols Oliver Lever-Smith on our podcast. He's from Sky Betting and Gaming. You can get him on Twitter. His handle is Hey, it's Ols, all one word. And uh, just want to say thank you to Ols. And uh, we'll see you folks later. Keep calm and carry on. Bye.